Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 22, this is what God's word says. And Jesus said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, and with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys for where your treasure is there will your heart be also amen let's pray together father in heaven as we have opened your word we ask that by your spirit you would reveal to us the treasure of your very own self help us to behold you in all of your radiant glory in all of your glistening brilliance and all the joy there is in knowing you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every once in a while, there are sermons where the pastor really feels like he's preaching to himself. Now, that's true of every sermon, and that should be true of every sermon. But once in a while... There's a passage in scripture that strikes the heart of the preacher himself in a very particular way, such that even if no one had come here this morning, and this room were empty except for a big mirror placed right in front of the pulpit, uh, the pastor would feel no difference whatsoever in preaching only to the man he sees in the mirror, and with the same fervor and urgency as if this room were full. And at today's passage is one of those for me as Jesus urges his people to not be anxious because I'll confess to you, I am the king of anxiety. Okay, I'm a peasant and everything else, but when it comes to worrying needlessly about things, I am practically emperor supreme. That's not a good thing. It's like saying you're a Sith Lord. Unless you're a Star Wars fan, I guess you like that stuff. But look, I, I worry about everything. I mean, about things I don't even need to worry about. And, and on the rare occasion that I find, my, find myself not worrying about anything because there's no pressing matter uh, for me to worry about, I'm sometimes tempted to worry that there is nothing to worry about. Why is there nothing to worry about? Is this the calm before the storm? Now, I say all that, but I'm sure that each and every one of us all the same struggle with the uh, 
incessant worries that plague our minds on a daily basis. What if this? What if that? And the reason why I share my own propensity to be anxious is to illustrate the fact of, first of all, its silliness. And secondly, how never-ending it really is. I mean, there's just no end in sight with worries, is there? Once you begin down the path of worrying about the things in your life, it's hard to stop. And you think you will stop, and you tell yourself that you will stop just after this one more session of fretting about all the different possibilities and scenarios that could go wrong. But in the end, we come right back for more. Because at the end of the day, anxiety is an insatiable demand for more and more control over our lives out of fear that perhaps there may not be enough. But it's a vicious cycle in which it'll never be enough to satisfy this demand, just like greed. In fact, notice how Jesus begins his words to his disciples here in verse 22. He says, therefore, I tell you. Now, whenever we see the word therefore in the Bible, we must stop and ask ourselves, what is the therefore, therefore? Why is it there? Well, it's there to link the thought here with with what came just before it. And Jesus here is clearly linking the thought of these verses with that of the previous passage, which we saw last week, as Jesus told a parable of the rich fool who was driven by never-ending greed and hunger for the riches of this world. And it was all a waste in the end. And in the same way, therefore, Jesus turns to his disciples and and says, I tell you, for the same reason, don't be anxious about your life about food, about clothing, about anything, for life is more than food in the body, more than clothing. Just as he said earlier in verse 15, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see, anxiety is just another form of greed and covetousness. Because the actively greedy man pursues worldly riches with all of his might and energy. Why? Because he's discontent with what he has. It's not enough. And so he needs more and more because he's obsessed with what he doesn't have. And likewise, the anxious man, he he is passively gripped by fear and frantically says to himself, I don't have enough, I don't have enough, I won't have enough. What if there is not enough? And both stem from taking our lives into our own hands and foraging for ourselves, providing for ourselves, and they both result in much restlessness and dissatisfaction. I mean, isn't this true if we're honest? Now, whenever we are anxious, throughout the entire duration of our worrying, there is never for a moment a joy or a peace. We get stirred up in a panic. It makes us feel dread and despair. It's incredibly addicting, but like all things that are addictive, It's very harmful to us. Anxiety robs us of true happiness and security. Ironically, because that's what the anxious man is anxious for, to have more security and assurance of well-being. But in being anxious for it, he loses it altogether. But here, Jesus gives us the very security and the comfort that has the power to put our anxiety to rest. That is, to realize the blessing we have in Christ, not just in knowing God as Father, but in being known by the Father. 
It is a peace that comes only from entrusting the totality of our lives into His perfect and infallible care. And thus we live for Him, and thus we rest in Him. And this is what it means to be rich toward God, as we saw in verse 21. To to realize how rich are all who are loved and cared for by Him. To not live tirelessly, laying up earthly treasures for ourselves, doing everything in our power to reach some ideal state of health, wealth, or security so that we don't ever have to worry about life again. All of which is but a false promise. You'll you'll never reach this illusion of of ultimate, final self-sufficiency and you'll never stop worrying all along this endless road of wishful thinking. But, but Jesus is telling us, just rest and enjoy the riches that are already yours in being a child under the, the parental care of your Heavenly Father. You don't have to fend for yourself in this world. You don't have to bear the burden of being your own primary caregiver. You have got it all in the love that your Father has for you in and through Christ. And so why don't you just entrust your concerns into his hands so that you can rest from all your worries. And to implant this promise deep within our minds, Jesus turns our attention to the testimony of nature as he begins in verse 24 by saying, Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. This is a tremendous lesson from the natural world that we often overlook. Because the ravens don't sow nor reap, which is the first century way of saying they don't partake in the industry of human labor because that's what it was. The, the agricultural work was the trade of the day. To put it another way, in our context, ravens don't have to commute to work and check their emails all the time and worry about the next deadline. They don't have storehouses or barns like we do. And that ravens don't, don't have 401k plans to worry about. They, they don't concern themselves with the high interest rates or mortgage payments. And they're failing investments in, in the stock market. And yet, despite having none of these concerns, God feeds them. He takes care of every single one of them. He sees to it that they have food for each day, their daily bread, so to speak. You know, ravens, they they, they are primarily scavengers, which means that their main source of food is the remaining aftermath of natural death or the likes of leftover carcasses from roadkill because you guys were driving too fast. In other words, ravens by nature are dependent on God's providence. For, for, for God to place food for them where they are at, for each and every raven. And God feeds them all. He arranges their every meal by His sovereign will that directs every affair of this world. And if this is how God tends to ravens, who have no concern whatsoever for the demands of modern day society with all of its complexity and concerns, how much more Does he and will he tend to you, Christian, his own child? Now, does this mean that we should all be passive and sit around and wait for 
money and food and whatever to just fall from the sky and or just be financially irresponsible? No, of course not. God has given us intellect and will and, and facility of mind and, and determination to be diligent and to work for the very things that we need. It is part of the glory of man as an image bearer of God. We, we reflect the creator in a unique way by mirroring his infinite wisdom, creativity, and productivity, as it were. And so Jesus is not teaching us the ways of lazy, passive inaction, And Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10 that if anyone is not willing to work, then he shouldn't be allowed to eat. Being active with our hands, feet, and minds, this is fundamental to human life. But the problem is that when we take action as we should, that so often we try to take more than just action. That is, that we try to take control. And that's when we run into much anxiety and stress and so jesus asks us the pointed question in verse 25 which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to a span of life he's saying look don't you see worrying is not adding anything to you it's subtracting from you it's taking from you each opportunity to spend that time living instead of fretting you know, it's strange that we can worry about things like, oh my goodness, what if this happens? Or what if that happens and I, I, I don't have anything to live off of? Or I get sick and I die early as a result of it. And yet, ironically, with all that time we spend worrying, we end up bringing about the very thing that we fear, which is our life getting cut short, being robbed of time. Because we're spending that time squandering it instead of living out the days that we have been given. And none of it adds a single hour to the very life that we fear losing. But this just shows how addictive anxiety really is. Again, that's what addiction and and enslavement really is, right? You you don't even want to keep doing it, but you can't help it. You know it's bad for you. You know it's harming you, but you're shackled to it. You're, you're, You're in bondage to it. Now, why is anxiety so addictive? It's because it taps into our flesh and it tickles our most fleshly desires for control. And autonomy. It, it, it makes us not be like God in a godly way, but it makes us want to be God, to put our lives into our own hands, to be our own master and self governing ruler. But Jesus says in verse 26 Look, if you are powerless to even add a single hour to your lifespan, that is to say, if you aren't able to control, even an hour of your life and command it according to your will, why do you even bother attempting to control the rest of your life, all the other hours ahead of you? Why don't you just leave it in the hands of your loving Father? You know, I think a subtle underlying misconception that we sometimes believe is that our need to depend on on God for everything is a result of the fall. That it's only because we are sinners that we must be utterly reliant on God in this fallen world. As if, as though if we were sinless, it would imply that we would not need God any longer. That couldn't be further from the truth. 
No, if we were sinless, we would be perfectly dependent, exhaustively, comprehensively dependent on God. Because that is how God designed us to be. The Garden of Eden before Genesis chapter 3 was the domain of God's perfect rule over man and man's total dependency on God's perfect rule. And this is why the gospel is called the ministry of reconciliation, bringing us back to a rightful relationship with our Creator and Father as we were always meant to relate to Him in joyful submission, in complete trust in His will, in happiest embrace of His loving authority. And this is the only true joy and peace and comfort of the human soul, which is to be ruled by God, who is so holy in the perfection of His love and goodness and generosity that He rules over His children in the most intimate and tender care. And so Jesus turns to yet another lesson from nature in verse 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Just like the ravens, the lilies of the field, these beautiful flowers, they don't spin. That is, they they don't weave, laboring in the textile industry, which again was one of the key industries of Jesus' day when he spoke these words. And so perhaps if he were to issue the same lessons in our contemporary times today, Jesus would have said something like, consider the lilies, how they grow. They don't arduously and nervously spend all day on LinkedIn, biting their nails in search of the next job. They don't strive and and worry about the demands of making a living. But look at how they grow, nonetheless. They have all they need to sprout and bud and live. And not only to just make it another day and merely stay alive, but look at how they thrive, as Jesus says. I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. I mean, what incredible language from Jesus. Even King Solomon, who at the peak of his reign over Israel was the richest, most powerful, most majestic man on earth. He he was decorated with the finest, priceless jewelry uh, conceivable on the planet and and robed with the most splendid royal garments. But just one of these flowers is clothed with more glory than Solomon. Why? How? Because God himself dresses each flower. They are tended to by God most directly without human hands. And if we were to take the time to consider the glory of the lily of the field, how it goes from a little seed hidden underground, invisible to the surface, and in due time buds and spreads its petals to paint the fields with color and vibrance, we perhaps understand better why Jesus speaks of them more gloriously than Solomon's finest apparel. Because the royal garments of Solomon immediately reflect man's artistry. But the flowers of the field most directly reflect God's artistry and the glory of His character. And have you ever wondered 
why God makes flowers so beautiful? And specifically, why does God ordain for fields on earth, some that no one will ever see, even meadows that no man has yet to discover nor will ever discover in the remotest parts of the world? Why does God ordain for those fields to still give blossom to such beautiful flowers? Why does God tend to them, send them rain, give them just the right amount of sunlight and see to it that they grow and bud and beautify the field even when no one else will witness it? It's because it pleases God to bestow beauty and life and significance for no other reason but for His own sake to reveal a peculiar hue of His glory as he shows himself to be the giver of every good and perfect gift. He, he lavishes the best of his beautiful self, even upon the most insignificant and unnoticed, simply because that is who God is. He himself is lovely. He is generous. He is the blessed God from whom all blessings and beauties flow. And so it is his good pleasure to just make things lovely and beautiful in its time for his own good pleasure. And if he treats with such intimate and tender care and gives the best of himself to these flowers, which are here today and withered away tomorrow, how much more will he clothe and tend to you, O oh, you of little faith. Now when Jesus says these words, I know sometimes we, we, we think to hear it in a very pejorative way where Jesus says, oh, your faith is so puny and mocking us. No, what he's really saying is, how much more will he clothe you, O oh, you of little trust? He's saying, do you trust your father so little still? After all that he has proven of his trustworthiness, and character to you. I mean, think upon your own life. Has God ever failed you? And hasn't He proven His relentless commitment of love and tender care to you? He has proven it with, the, with His final word of the gospel in, in giving His Son for you, that through Him He might bestow His eternal and infinite love upon you, a sinner who deserved to be withered away along with the flowers of the field. Beloved, let the lilies of the field teach you that if they are so marvelously taken care of, blossoming at the right time, in and through different seasons, without a care in the world, then how much more will God tend to your needs at the right time? Entrust your times and seasons to God. Entrust the timings of the things of life to God. He knows what He's doing. He is able to adorn your life with more beauty and significance and meaning than you can, than any man can, than the greatest servants of Solomon can array Him and learn from the flowers that He is well pleased to tend to you and bring you to full blossom in due time. Let the lilies be your teachers. Let the ravens be your professors of theology. That if he cares so much for little ravens, how much more will he care for you? 
I mean, in fact, going back to the ravens for a second, you know, what's particularly astounding in what Jesus says about the ravens is that, you know, ravens were not only worthless birds, just like the sparrows, but they were charmless birds. They were unattractive and unlovable. They were viewed and often associated with gloom and death. And actually, even in English literature, Edgar Allan Poe wrote that famous poem, The Raven, in the 19th century, to depict being haunted by despair and a hopeless nevermore. And yet, even for such unattractive birds, God cares for them this much, provides for all their needs. And if that's what He does, then how much more you, loved ones, you for whom Christ died, that you might be clothed in his perfect righteousness, that in Christ you are now beloved by God, that you are altogether precious and beautiful in his sight, not because of what you have done, but because by faith you are one with Christ, who is the very splendor and majesty of holiness. And having given these illustrations from the classroom of nature, Jesus moves to press the point very practically in verse 29 by addressing our thinking and our perspective. Verse 29, he says, Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Again, Jesus is not saying... Don't let the finger to eat and drink and just pray for food and necessities to magically appear on your doorstep. Now we've already discussed that God has called us to work and he has called us to productivity by which we display the image of his glory that we bear as his uh, people. And also those are the very means by which God provides for us. But the word that Jesus is very careful to use here is this. Don't seek after these things. Don't let these things be your chief ambition in life because life is more than just food and clothing and all the staple items for staying alive. Don't you know by now that your father is not one to abandon the children whom he loves, for whom he has given his own son? And so entrust all these things to him. But if you live seeking after these things, Constantly worrying about if you'll have enough or worrying about what might happen tomorrow, next week, and next year, then you'll only be plagued with fear and despair. In fact, the word that Jesus uses here for do not be worried in verse 29, it's a very uh, interesting uh, and strange word. Uh, It literally says, do not be raised up or do not be lifted up or do not be elevated. When I saw that, I thought, well, that's kind of odd. What does that have to do with worrying? But as I really contemplated the semantic sense of this word this past week, I I realized it's actually very descriptive of how we are when we worry. When we worry, we are raised up in suspense, suspended in midair, as it were. You know, the, 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 the nervous man, even physiologically, what does he do? He's constantly inhaling and being raised up and he's unable to exhale and rest and be brought back down to the ground and have peace. And that's why even in English, we use the phrase, we need to calm down 
as opposed to being worked up. And the point is, all this restlessness and peacelessness, Jesus is telling us these things to liberate us from it by urging us, don't seek after all these concerns you have in life. Look, the unbelieving world, they, they live for these things and these things only. But for you, Jesus says, your Father knows that you need them. Rest in Him. Rest in His care. You know, as believers, we really take for granted the unimaginable blessing of having one to trust and cast upon all our anxieties. The world does not have this privilege of resting in God as their father. You know, why do you think that so many people turn to government and politics and they put all their hope and stock in it to their great dismay and disappointment every single time, but they still keep going back. Why? Because that's the closest thing to a higher power that they can conceive of. You know, it's remarkable how unavoidable it is that even the staunchest of unbelievers, they feel this intrinsic need to rely upon that which is greater and more powerful than they. I mean, truly, the law of God is written on every heart and every conscience bears witness to the truth, Romans 2.15. But church, we know and we have the one who is perfect in his governing rule, righteous in all of his ways, and so gracious in love to his people over whom he reigns. That is a blessing and a comfort that we must not take for granted. And so Jesus tells us in verse 31, instead of fretting about all the things that the world frets over, instead, seek God's kingdom. And all these things would be added to you. There's a very practical help to protect us from anxiety. It's not enough to just avoid being anxious and stop having any kind of ambitions or concerns Altogether, I mean, in some ways, we can't cease from thinking about our ambitions and having various concerns because part of that, in its pure form, is just being intelligent human beings and exercising the faculty of reason and intellect and will. I mean, mean just the, the ability to think ahead beyond what's just in front of you and to methodically plan for things in advance, it's part of what makes us so wonderfully human and again reflecting the glory of our infinitely intelligent creator and so what does jesus say here he says don't seek after all these necessities and amenities that the world world seeks after but instead do seek after concern over be ambitious for something else namely the things of god's kingdom What we need is to not cease from caring about anything anymore, but to replace the object of our cares and concerns with the chief ambition of God's will and glory above all things. And we are to learn to keep the kingdom of God as our ultimate priority. And when we do, it's amazing that God doesn't leave us dry and call us to pursue him at the expense of what we need. God doesn't say, hey, you know what? You don't need food. You don't need a car. You don't need a job. Just become a hermit and serve me as a monk and forget about life on earth. 
No, Jesus says, your father knows that you need all these things. Seek the kingdom and all these things, the very things that the world frets over, they will be given to you. He's saying, don't worry, I will personally see to it that you have everything you need to live the life I have called you to live. And so you don't have to focus all your energy on the stuff and the things of life. I'm freeing you up from the burden of self-provision so that you can focus your mind and heart on what's really important and what really matters on living the life I have called you to live. For your highest concern each day to be, what is it that my Father is calling me to do? What is His will for me? That's what I want you to live for, Jesus says. And that's what sets you apart from how everyone else lives in the world. You see, to, to live a holy life set apart from this world, it doesn't mean that you leave society and go into a cave and live some monastic life. But to live a holy life is to live a life of holy ambition. To be in the world, but not of the world. To be a man or a woman governed by an entirely different and supernatural priority system. Prioritizing godly integrity above anything else. Seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness, as Matthew chapter 6 tells us. And in your workplace, in your business, in your financial investments, whatever it may be, To always choose the option of what is right in God's eyes, even if it means it's the harder option, even if it means less pay, less revenue, whatever it may be. Proverbs 15, 16 says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Proverbs 16, 8, Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Jesus is teaching us to prioritize spiritual welfare over mere physical welfare or financial welfare, whatever, to take care of your soul. You know, the pressure of this modern society and economy, especially in this very fast-paced Silicon Valley world, it leads many to pursue the job that simply pays more and more without taking into account all the hours that are demanded. Now, look, by all means, go and find a job that pays as much as possible. By no means is it wrong to receive the wages that you are due and worth as a laborer. But it's not worth it if it demands excessive hours. No matter how much money is thrown at you, if it causes stress, if it stresses your family life, if it hinders your ability to be a faithful and present husband or wife, a faithful father or mother, to be a faithful church member, it's not worth it. Don't make your decisions as if your life hangs on every penny offered to you by mega corporations. God will always see to it that you have enough. And then we need to learn to make decisions with the priority of biblical principles, biblical values, and biblical promises that are simply not quantifiable by worldly metrics. To, to seek the kingdom means to prioritize eternal investments over just temporal investments. It's not to the exclusion of temporal investments, but we're talking priority. 
is to learn to be generous, not only with your money, but to be generous with your time. You know, it's good to focus on your family. In fact, for some people, you really need to spend more time focusing on your family. But to do so not to the neglect of investing into the lives of the family of God, your fellow brothers and sisters in the church, to build relationships with them. Because the kingdom of God, that which you are to seek after, is expressed primarily in what? In the ministry and mission of His church. You know, you can spend all day talking about different examples, but you see, the one who lives under the Father's care is supernaturally enabled to make very different decisions than the rest of the world. Decisions that make the world go, huh? Why would you do that? But it's because those things that the world pursues with all their might, all of those things are secondary for the Christian. And what is primary is the will of God, the principles of His Word, the spiritual welfare, and the sanctification of their soul. And if we need any more assurance that God has everything taken care of for us, Jesus concludes by underscoring the promise of the Father. Verse 52, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I love how tenderly Jesus speaks. What an affectionate adjective. Little flock. Sing, my little ones, my little lambs. You know, everyone sings the song, Mary had a little lamb. No, Jesus has many little lambs. All of us saying, come to me, I will give you rest from your troubles and fears. Don't be afraid. Because let me assure you, your father is pleased and very happy to give you not just a little bit, but even the entirety of his kingdom. As his child, you are set to inherit all that is his. And if that's your father's affectionate heart for you, could you possibly have any reason to doubt that he will make sure that you are provided for, for all your needs as you live in pursuit of his will? You know, I've come to realize in my own life and in my own heart that when I go through trials or when I am anxious about some uncertainty or fear, the hardest thing in those moments for me to believe is not that God is sovereign, but that God is good. It's not that God is in control, but that God is near. Not that God is wise, I know that, but that God is with me and is pleased with me and means these things out of delight. And I think here Jesus is settling the matter once for all to assure us that our Heavenly Father is so good and near and kind to us that He even says, Child, what's mine is yours. I give you everything. And it's when we grasp the wonder and sufficiency of this love that we can do what Jesus says in verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old 
And with treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Jesus is not telling us to have zero possessions and liquidate all our assets, including our house, and just to go live on the streets as though there were some spiritual virtue in that. But he's setting forth logical contrasts, especially compared to the rich fool in the previous passage. He's saying sell your possessions versus hoard your possessions. He's saying give to the needy versus indulge everything for yourself. Live to just simply please and gratify yourself, which is what the rich fool had done. The point is to say you can sell and give everything away, unlike the world who lives for these things, who clenches them tightly. And even if you were to lose everything, in the end you will lose nothing. And you will still have everything. Because you're rich toward God, who is your Heavenly Father. You have an unfading inheritance waiting for you to be fully realized in eternity. And so live as though you could sell everything and it wouldn't matter. It's all about the attitude, you see. Jesus often teaches in shocking imperatives in order to address the attitudes and the mindset and the thoughts of the heart. Hence, he ends in verse 34 by saying, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you seek after and live for the treasures of this world, your heart will be bound and enslaved to this world and suffer all the troubles that come with it. But if you seek after and live for the treasures of heaven, for the kingdom of God, your heart will soar above all these earthly concerns and fears and all the anxiety that comes with it. Church, this is the blessing of being God's child. And realizing all the blessing that there is in it. And it is for our sake, for our well-being, for our happiness, that Jesus urges us here. Stop living as though you are an orphan. Having to worry about food on the table. Having to scavenge to meet your own needs. Look at how loved you are by God. And praise Him first and foremost by trusting Him. By resting from your anxieties. And resting in His loving care. For those of you here today who do not know this blessing. For those of you who have not put your trust in Jesus Christ. You are spiritually destitute and bankrupt in your sins. You are an infinite debtor before God because you're a sinner. But this is the beauty of the gospel, that God has sent His Son to pay for the debt of sin for all who confess their sin and turn to Him by faith. Because Jesus paid for the penalty of sin on the cross so that you, a sinner, might be rich toward God, to be adopted as His child and receive the full inheritance of His kingdom. If you're honest, life is hard, isn't it? It's scary many times with all the uncertainty. And strangely enough, we think that kids are those who are often scared and helpless, but 
In all reality, when we grow up into adulthood, life only gets scarier. We feel more alone because we become more aware of how little we know, of how powerless we are. And we see all the unknowns and the troubles that may befall us, of which we were ignorant as little children. (laughs) Friend, if you are without Christ, understand that you're not meant to live autonomously, alone. Come to God, repent of your sin, and entrust your life and your soul and your eternity to Him. He will never harm you. He will take you under the shelter of His wings. Come to the Father through Jesus Christ, His Son, and know the joy of being His little flock and the peace of being able to say, The Lord is my shepherd. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, our Father in heaven, Thank you for the promise of your gospel, not only in that you have brought about the forgiveness of sins through what your son has done on the cross. It's not that we have been by faith merely forgiven and just left to ourselves, but Lord, you have taken us in under your very own fold. Lord, how secure we are, how protected we are. Forgive us for the ways in which we forget this. And we still live as though we have to do things on our own. Would you strengthen our faith and help us to believe better the blessing that we have in you. And we thank you for giving to us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper by which you remind us visibly tangibly and very intimately your heart of tender care for us and you give these things to us to feed our souls to strengthen the weakness of our faith that we might be reminded of how happy we are to be in your kingdom to be brought into a loving relationship with you would you set apart these ordinary elements of the bread and the cup for the holy purpose of ministering to our souls and assuring us with the promise of your gospel. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.